Hey guys, Cade Wilcox here, host of the Primitive Podcast, where we take a deep dive into all things leadership. On today's episode, we have Dan Adams, who's the president and CEO of Cal Farley's Boys Ranch, this incredible nonprofit that serves youth who are really going through a tough patch in their life. I hope you enjoy this episode, and as always, thank you for joining us. Especially now, be a calm in the storm. This year, is, the whole world is sort of panicked, and it's created changes in the, the national environment, social media, the politics, and all of the anxiety of the adult world trickles down to the children that, that we have in care, and what we have to do is maintain the sanity. And we don't have time, really, to take off. We're 365 days a year, 24-7, I really have to be the calm in the storm and say, you know what, folks, we're going to get through this. Hey, Dan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. So you're the CEO at Boys Ranch. I've been there a long time. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Boys Ranch and aren't familiar with your leadership, tell us a little bit of how, how you came into this role and what your work looks like. I guess I came into this, uh, this role naturally. My parents were missionaries. Okay. So uh, my youth was, I was raised on different mission stations in, in uh, Congo and Zambia. Okay. And ended up at the Navajo mission uh, on the, right off the Navajo reservation in New Mexico in high school. And oh, wow. I got to Texas when my father was appointed to uh, First Methodist Church of San Angelo and then to the chaplaincy over at the Methodist Children's Home in Waco. And that's how I actually got into this business. By that time, I was 17 and uh, started working as a house father on, during my summer breaks from college. Okay. Uh, a young house father at a boys ranch down there in Waco, probably uh, a fifth the size of Cal Harley's boys ranch. Right. Uh, but anyway, I, I was right at the grassroots level of that business in the trenches with those boys. And I remember thinking, you know, I was a pretty cocky, young, healthy guy and college age. I thought, heck, I can go out there and handle those boys. And they played me like a fiddle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, were, they were a lot better at being juvenile delinquents and, and oppositional <laughs> defiant than I was at knowing what to do about it. <laughs> and I was an easy score. I mean, you know, they could manipulate me. So uh, it was humbling, but but also uh, just something that, that really touched my heart. And, you know, the rest is history. I, I have grown up in this business. That was back in the early 80s. That was actually in 1980. Okay. So I've been, been in this field ever since. Uh, that's incredible. So maybe give a backstory of of Boys Ranch. You know, uh, you know, I I grew up in West Texas my whole life and played played football against Boys Ranch maybe once or twice. I grew up in Nazareth, you know, but kind of short of that and hearing it, hearing about it in the region, you know, I'm not really f uh, familiar with the backstory. And so maybe share a little bit about that with us. Yeah. Um... You know, Cal Farley came to Amarillo in 1925 to play baseball for the Gassers. And, you know, he didn't make it into the major league, but he was an athlete and he, he became a world welterweight wrestling champion. And that on the West Coast and, and met a lot of people. 
but really liked Amarillo, came back, started a tire shop in 1934, in, in the early 30s. And in 34, started a, uh, uh, a place called the Maverick Club because he saw a bunch of boys running around on the streets with not enough to do. So the Maverick uh, Club, which is still out there on I-40 uh, east of town, um, and, that, and boys were coming in a little early and leaving a little late, and he realized that they didn't have a home. So he identified nine boys and talked to Julian Bivens, who owned the footprint of old Tascosa. And the old courthouse was there, and, and that became the dormitory for the Maverick Boys Ranch. And, you know, later he, he cut ties with Maverick because they were local and he wanted to go national, and it became America's first boys ranch, and then, and then it, it became Cal Farley's boys ranch in the 50s. So it, it actually started in 1939. Uh, today, it's a 12,000-acre working ranch with 28 homes for kids. It's uh, kids that come from all parts of the country that, you know, their parents call because they're, you know, at wit's end to know what to do. And so what we're trying to do maybe is cut a, uh, cut a kid off in the past from, from going into juvenile delinquency. Uh, we, we have beds for up to 290 kids. Of course, right now with, with all the shutdowns and everything, it's uh, 2020 has been kind of a stagnant year that way because we just we're trying to protect the health and safety of the kids that are out there now. Hmm. But uh, in normal times, we have about, you know, in the 200s of, of kids that go to Boys Ranch Independent School District, the Rough Riders that you played. Yeah. And we, we have K through 12. And it's kids who who can't live at home for one reason or the other. And they come to Boys Ranch and we try to, you know, we can take a five-year-old child and raise them and send them to college. Wow. And so I actually have a about you know, between 70 and 100 kids in college at any one time. And um, so it's pretty phenomenal because we do that at no, with, at no fee uh, for service. And, uh, and it's pretty remarkable. Wow. So you, you raise your annual budget? We do. We actually, you know, back in, back in the earlier years, Cal Farley and the board started with uh, the Cal Farley's Boys Ranch Foundation that was started back in 60, 61 uh, with just a little nest egg of money and they always lived within their means. So they were actually raising um, more than they were uh, spending, but, but they were investing money. And, you know, today we, uh, we have, well, two primary funding streams. One is an annual draw for the foundation, 4.8% of a trailing five-year average of the value of that. And that brings in around 17 million a year. And then we raise, we raise the rest. Okay. And just over the years, people have, uh, you know, donated oil and gas royalties. And so we get about a couple of million a year off of that. And then, we raise around 24, 25 million. So our annual budget's around the $42 million range. Wow, that's amazing. So, so is, I mean, is it fair to say that when Cal Farley, you know, he just, when he first started with this vision that it was really small, I mean, it was just for a handful of kids and, 
you know, trying to, to create some level of activity for them. You mentioned he started with nine. So like over what course of time did it go, you know, how long did it go where it was like kind of like this small, this small vision, just trying to help a handful of kids to, you know, a 12,000 acre working ranch with a 40 plus million dollar budget. I mean, what was that little journey like for him? Even if you know, at first it was just to meet a need that he saw and they, you know, he was a great, um, you know, if you ever read Malcolm Gladwell, you know, the, uh, uh, in the book, The Tipping Point, he describes different types of people. And, and one of those types of people is a connector. And there's just a, you know, small degree of separation between that person and anyone else in the country. Right. And Cal is a connector and he, he, he rubbed elbows with some pretty substantial figures in the time. And, uh, so when he started Boys Ranch, you know, the Julian Bivens was a big player around here, the Bivens family, they're still right. significant. Um, and, and then he, he had a vision. He, of course, it was nine boys. And you know, the, the first of those nine boys just died last year. Wow. And I knew him and that, and that was, uh, it was really a powerful thing to know Alvis. He, he died about 95 years old. Um. But yeah, Cal had a vision, and, and so he started Boys Ranch in 39 with those nine boys and decided that he needed a school for them. So back in 41, he goes down to the state legislature in Austin and asks for a school for Boys Ranch, and they created Boys Ranch Independent School District, wow. which is still today a special purpose district in, in the TEA code, in the education code, you, have, you see Cal Harley's Boys Ranch written in there. Uh, he knew he needed to market and, and he, he needed support and donations. So, of course, he had a radio program, but he, all, he also wanted to be able to get people out to Boys Ranch. So in 1944, he started the rodeo and we still do the Boys Ranch annual rodeo today. Hmm. Uh, back then, it, it was, uh, you know, just right out there in front of the courthouse. And today we have a stadium with, you know, that seats about 5,000 people that, that we we had the Labor Day uh, rodeo in '46. He, you know, one of his his peers was Father Flanagan of Boys Town, and and Father Flanagan had made a movie called Boys Town with Spencer Tracy and Mickey Rooney, and and Cal Farley decided, well, you know, I need a movie too, and they had a movie called Boys Ranch, and it, <laughs> it's an old black and white. You can you can see it today, and so he was that type of entrepreneurial figure in uh, 49 he started doing a newsletter and in a direct mail program he'd go to a Kiwanis or a rotary meeting in Oklahoma City say and bring the phone book back and he and his wife would go through the phone book and they'd mail people and, and uh, you know he reminds me Jim Collins and, uh, wrote a book called Good to Great and, and he wrote a little monograph called good to great for the social sector mm. and he you know he was describing what what was called the hedgehog principle and he and he was he came up with three questions what are you really good at or what are you best in the world at and how do you know it and how do you how what are you inspired by what inspires your passion and how do you translate that to other people then what are your resource engines and how do you keep them perpetuated? Sort of use that formula. 
you know, so he used the newsletter and the mail and the movie to inspire passion in others. And then he, he created the foundation to keep the resource engines going. And of course, he always felt like he was the best in the world taking care of boys. So hmm. just a formula that's, that our board continue to, to use. It's powerful. At what point, this is the last question related to Boys Ranch. I, it's it's really fascinating. Then I want to kind of jump into leadership. But at what point did it go from like an exclusively, you know, a boys focused school to, you know, all students? And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was just boys up into the early 90s. And hmm. a, uh, a woman named Mrs. Remercy, Marjorie Remercy, get wanted to build a home at boys ranch you know we had all these homes and they're named after the different donors and she said i want to build a home but i want girls in it well it was a board splitting decision you know they they wanted to accept the home but uh and some board members left but they decided to go ahead and uh invite girls to live in that in that home and there was another campus in south of here called Girlstown that Boys Ranch had taken over back in the 80s. And they moved nine girls up from Boys Ranch and uh, and put them in that in Ms. Remercy's home. And then Mrs. Remercy built uh, four more homes. So there's Remercy one, two, three, four, and five. Huh. And then we we remodeled three other homes. And so there's eight homes for girls at Boys Ranch today. Hmm. But that was an interesting time. I mean, we probably don't have time to go into all the all the details, but I bet that was an interesting time going from, yeah, just in all boys school and then introducing nine girls to it. And I mean, I bet, I bet that was some interesting dynamics, even back in the 90s. I, I can't imagine making that, that transition in the 21st century, um, you know. But well, you know, I came in as the administrator of Girlstown and they, you know, when, when Boys Ranch took over, they didn't have... They just, they didn't have policies for girls. So they, you know, so the, the, you know, the procedure manual that I had as the administrator of girls town, they just scratched out the word boys and put girls, but they're very different. (laughs) Yeah, it's very different. (laughs) Very different. It's fascinating. Well, thanks for sharing all that. So tell me in kind of your view and like how you view leadership and like what you see your role um, as the president and CEO at Boys Ranch, what does leadership mean to you, and what does it mean to y'all's organization? Well, it, it's uh, you know it, it has it's modified or morphed over time um, because the this was my back in the '04 when I became the the CEO. I'd been working for Cal Farley's for you know several years, and and. Uh, and I came into it, you know, as a greenhorn, uh, not knowing what to expect. And, and over time, you just acclimate, you know. I think I think if you, you know, there is such a thing called the Peter Principle, where where people, you know, migrate way beyond what their capacity is. Fortunately, that didn't happen to me, but I did grow in time. The hardest thing as a leader was to be able to let go of what I knew best, and that was the administration of children's programs. Because as the CEO, I had to be, you know, I had to look at the whole picture, the fundraising, the, the foundation, the HR, the finance. And I think you, you're you naturally drawn to being more involved in what I was, the program, uh, 
so, you know, just over time, what I realized was I had to focus on different things. And it has depended on the era. Sometimes I had to focus more. We had to restructure our foundation. And instead of, you know, running that in-house, we outsourced it. And then I've spent more time in fundraising as of late. Um, when we were in the initial stages, we were in a transformation and I was, uh, I was more designing programs. So I think as a leader, my, uh, my job is to keep the fire burning and keep, keep the organization focused on the mission and to try to maintain a vision for the future, which I, I think is part of our, our history. And then also, especially now, be a calm in the storm. <laughs> uh, you know, with COVID, there's a tendency uh, this year, is, there's, the whole world is sort of panicked and, and it's created changes in the, the national environment, the social media, the politics, and, and all, of, all of the anxiety of the adult world trickles down to the children that we have in care and, and what we have to do is maintain the sanity. And we don't have time really to take off. We're, we're three, six, 365 days a year, 24 seven. And uh, I, I really have to be the calm in the storm and say, you know what folks, we're gonna get through this. And all we, you know, we need to focus on why we're here. And, and uh, I think that's what, yeah, that's good. There's a couple of things you said I would like to unpack, you know, practically speaking. When you when you think, you made this statement, you know, your role is to keep the fire burning. Um, and I assume what you mean by that is, you know, passion for what your organization is doing. And, and you mentioned vision. What does that look like for you on a personal level? Like, what do you do for your organization and the employees that you're leading and the teams that you're leading? What do you do practically to kind of keep that fire burning and to stay kind of, as you said, focused on the mission? Well, I, number one, I think I, I have to believe it. Hmm. And it's, what's interesting about organizations, at least in my experience, is that, that everybody gets real excited about a, a vision <clears throat> and they can even, they even get excited about the, pop, the, uh, the prospect of change, but when it boils down to it, if, you, if they don't have a good understanding of where they're going, they're going to hold on to dear, for dear life to what they've got. And, you know, so for me, the best thing I can do is the, is the communication I do with all of the stakeholders. <clears throat> and that, that starts with my relationship with the board of directors. Um, because a strategic vision actually comes out of that boardroom. And, and most of these guys are not, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> people in child, uh, child care administration. These guys, these men and women are in businesses of their own. And so they're kind of counting on me to say, this is what's right. This is what is mission centric. Uh, and then be able to communicate that to a leadership team that, uh, in a way that they can translate that to, you know, the people that work for them. And I, and I think it has to fit with things that they understand and it makes sense to them. Um, and, and I also then have to communicate that to our donor base because we're, we're so dependent on, on the donors that they have to believe in what we're doing. And, and so it's, uh, I do, it's the communication and the relationships that I, I have to maintain and manage. 
it also includes alumni because when you know alumni and, and old guard staff when they see things that look different it, it seems like alumni they, they take a snapshot in time in their mind and that's the way it always should be at boys ranch and the whole world changes but boys ranch is supposed to stay the same yeah uh, and that's not the, really the way it is and i have to be able to make sense of that hmm. How do you do this? Is all really great stuff. Like, what what is your communication cadence look like? Like, real practical. Like, how often do you meet with the board, and then how often do you meet with your leadership team, and then funnels out that vision to the people that they're leading, and it kind of tr has that trickle effect amongst all your other stakeholders. So, you know, what what does that look like? It it looks this year. You know, I'm not going to take this year off the table because we can't. But there's a lot, a big difference between meeting virtually and meeting in person. <clears throat> we have a, about eight board meetings a month. And, and on my board, there's 30 slots. And I probably keep around 16 to 18 board members. <clears throat> and we have uh, board committees. So the, the full board meets. Uh, eight times a year, and it's usually a noon meeting, and we just kind of give an over overview of all of the different things going on in programs, ops, finance, fundraising, and and then we have uh, an executive committee, which is made up of members of the various committees. We have a budget audit committee, and that meets quarterly. We have a program committee that meets quarterly, and we have a governance committee that meets about twice a year, and they oversee policies and, uh, you know, bylaws and things like that. So you take in those eight board meetings, the quarterly meetings of the committees, and then we also have the foundation board, and it meets on a quarterly basis. So uh, the foundation is made up, the, the board is made up of members of the full board that go over it. Uh, and then it has two at-large members. So that's board meetings. I, we, I meet on a weekly basis right here at this table <clears throat> with my senior leadership team, and it involves uh, my chief program officer, my chief operating officer, chief financial officer, um, fundraising, and my fundraising team, um, and my HR director. And we, you know, we do a round robin and, and those things have to tie somehow to, you know, what the organizational goals are. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, you know, for some people listening, that might, that might sound, you know, kind of like a boring detail, but, you know, you talked about how critical communication is and, you know, there's a method to communication. It doesn't just happen accidentally. And so I'm always really curious, at, you know, what people's meeting cadence is. You know, meetings can be really productive and they can also be really non-productive. And there, there's a lot of valuable time there. So it's interesting. Well, you're, you're right. And so to me, the, the board meetings can go on forever. So I, I time limit them. They're, you know, they're an hour and a half, uh, just about an hour and a half. Now with, with, with COVID and all with virtual, you can time out and say, well, you know, the clock's run out. We're gonna Yeah. My my leadership meetings, I, I learned those those things could go on forever. So I limit them to about an hour, hour and a half. So essential things, I think it's more efficient and you get more out of meetings if they're time focused. Yeah.
That's good. Um, talk to me a little bit about failure. It seems like really great leaders, you know, almost have like a philosophy or a way that they approach failure. And I'm curious if, you know, just, uh, you know, what your, what your thoughts on failure are, you know, if there's a practical way that you try to learn from failure or document failure. So what has failure looked like for you as a leader and, you know, how have you tried to approach it? I think failure is essential. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you, if you don't fail, you're not really uh, taking risks. And in this business, there's risk that's inherent. Uh, when you take, you know, children from all over the country that have, that have, you know, difficulties with their behaviors and emotion and put them together on one campus, you're, you're, you're asking, <laughs> you're asking for some, some failure. I look at it in terms of what you can learn from it and you know what what was my role in that and what would we do different next time and I, uh, I also think that you have to be able to evaluate it at the personal level and when it comes to failures that directly impact the care of, or, of the kids you know I, I look at it a little differently and so, you know, is there, is it poor judgment on someone's part? Is it, is it lack of knowledge on someone's part or is it just pure meanness? Hmm. Uh, and I, you know, that's, that's at the grassroots level. So one of the things that we struggled with when I first came was there was, uh, we were in a transformational time and kids were acting out a lot and there was a lot of physical force to manage kids' behavior. And, you know, we were, we worked away from that. We had, we had to work away from that. And it got even to the point where we held such a hard, a high bar for someone intervening physically with an out of control kid that they were really afraid to do it. Uh, but, but if it did happen, uh, if, a, if a staff member ended up getting into a physical confrontation with a kid just to maintain, manage their out of control behavior, that's when that, that question would come into play. Was, was it lack of knowledge about what else they could do to deescalate the situation? Or is that staff member just flat out mean and does he like to fight? <laughs> I mean, that's, that was sort of a, a, a basic sense. And then, and, uh, but but also uh, you know I just had a meeting in the back with my with my fundraising team and we're talking about our direct mail program and, and certain packages that we're going to send and there's a lot of money in direct mail and you know if if a package that you choose to send out to donors to um, you know, for Christmas doesn't work as well as you thought it would, then it's a budget, it's a budget driver, hmm. but it's, I'm not going to sell my soul uh, to get the money and what, what the whole deal is. It's like, am I going to send out a bunch of Christmas cards and stamps and stickers, or I'm, am I going to send out a story about a child? <laughs> hmm. And so. That's good. So, um, What's your approach to your own personal growth? I mean, you have, you have a lot of people you're dealing with. You're dealing with a very large board. You're dealing with subcommittees. You're dealing with your senior leaders. You're dealing with families. You're dealing with students. You're de dealing with you know community and regional stakeholders. You're dealing with do donors and alumni. And so you have a lot of 
you have a lot of different things kind of pulling and, and, and vying for your time. So what, what's your approach to your own personal growth and staying accountable and staying inspired in the work that you're doing? Well, uh, again, that's changed with time. And, you know, I was, when I was younger in my leadership role, I, I was busy immersing myself in, in the other boards and associations and going down and, and speaking at hearings on child care legislation and all. And what I realized over time is that if I had good, a good team of people that worked for me, I, I started transferring some of that, uh, delegating some of that to them. And, and over time, your, your own arrogance or need for your ego uh, strokes sort of fades to wisdom and a confidence of a different kind where you start shifting from from it being about your own personal growth where you start, uh, where the person across the table from you starts mattering more. <laughs> and and I, I feel like I benefit at this point in my life uh, through by watching people who work for me be successful. And I think that just, that comes with time. The other thing is the you you mentioned our mutual friend Alex. I, I do a lot of consult consultation and consulting with um, other business leaders, and I try to do it with business leaders outside of my field. That I think that not nonprofit leadership has been you know notoriously negligent in terms of learning from our for profit partners in terms of business efficiency and and you know the way the way they make decisions about what's important and what's not. So I could, you know, I oftentimes just ask somebody for, you know, to drink, like have a cup of coffee with them and talk through a challenge that I have. And, and uh, it ends up being very valuable to me. And I learn more from that kind of encounter than I ever did sitting in a seminar. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. What have been some of the biggest personal influences in, in your leadership journey and, and what are some of the things you, you've learned from them? I mean, you mentioned, you know, your desire to learn from, from other, other leaders. Who, who are some of those, uh, you know, influences throughout your, your kind of leadership journey and what are some of the mo more critical things you've learned from them? I would start with the, when I was young and I, before I was in a, uh, leadership capacity or probably even thought about being in one when I was in direct direct care or even mid-level management roles the how I perceived the administrators or the leaders that that I was responsible to and I learned as much from the ones that I didn't uh, that I didn't care for than I did from the ones that I, I wanted to emulate. And what I mean by that is, is that I feel like I, I went into this business with a pretty good intuition about, uh, about a right way and a wrong way. And I, I think I've watched other leaders make, make enough mistakes that I, that I even said as a young guy, you know what, if I'm ever in a position of authority, I won't do that. <laughs> Especially, you know, when I was a house father with a bunch of kids and I, I ended up, I found myself in a place where I didn't have enough training. I was over my head. I didn't have enough supervision and help and, and support. 
And I remember thinking then, I was 23 years old, I said, I would never put someone in this position. And so as a leader, I learned from that and I overemphasized supervision and training and teamwork and, and support. And then I, I did have, uh, you know, leaders, especially men, social workers who, you know, who were really my mentors in getting in making the decision to go get my master's degree in social work from the University of Texas uh, and then get into management. Social work, nursing, things like that have always been typically female dominated. And I, I, I felt like I, I had that calling. And so it was good to have some men, men that were in front of me. I've always been uh, inspired by people who were innovators that who, you know, had a mantra that it's not about why I can't do something, it's how I can. And that fits with with Boys Ranch. It fits with me. It fits with Boys Ranch is that there's always going to be barriers, whether it's regulatory or financial. And you're just going to figure out if you if you believe in where you're going, you're going to figure out how you're going to get there. And and I've always been inspired by people who who modeled that. Yeah. Um, I I look at the the CEO who hired me. I, I think a lot of him because he believed in me and he saw something that I didn't even see in myself and he was pure business and I was pure program and together we were a great team and he learned from me and I learned from him and he took me to, uh, to eat lunch over at Chili's one day. I had no idea about being a CEO. He said, Dan, oh, by the way, and this is at the end of the meal, uh, we just we just elected you president. And I said, I didn't, I don't remember uh, applying for that job, Chris. And he goes, you've been applying for 10 years, young man. And so I really appreciated that. Um, and then the other is I'm influenced by young people who we serve. And I, I, I've always felt like Oftentimes, especially kids that go into an institutional care, that society holds a low bar for them. And, you know, kids will belly crawl under a low bar. <laughs> but if you hold the bar higher, they will exceed your highest expectations. And I, that's what that's what inspires me. So when I spend too much time around this office, uh, I, I'll go out to Boys Ranch and I'll go go over to the cafeteria and I'll watch kids coming in there and interacting and I'll sit down with a table of kids and and uh, that influences it, it influences me to be a better CEO for them. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it's great, great insight. Thank you for that. All right, my last question for you: If you could speak to your younger self, you know, fifteen, twenty. 25 years ago, what advice would you give yourself based on what you know now? Leave your ego at the door. Um, there's, a, there's a book I read the other day. It's called Ego is the Enemy. And it's by a guy named Ryan Holiday. And, and I think that all too often, you know, people in leadership positions, especially if they have CEO title uh you know spend a lot of time thinking it's about them 
when it really isn't. And I think that's the biggest stumbling block in leadership is not being able to, to understand uh, or, or appreciate the gravity of the responsibility that you have for other people. <laughs> and if you're able to do that, then what happens is that your, I think your satisfaction and your, your inspiration in life comes from the success of, of other people, the people that you have mentored. And I, I think about, I want to, uh, an old guy, one of the old guard guys at Boys Ranch one day, he, you know, I was up in, in the board meeting and Cal Farley's daughter sitting here to my left and he's sitting over the big, you know, patriarch is sitting to my right and they've retired, but I'm talking about changes at Boys Ranch, changes to things that they, that they started or that Cal started. And, and it, it, it was hard for me. And, and one day the old patriarch came up to me and said, man, you know, I support everything you're doing. He says, I, I, I was a product of my time. And, and there's no way I could do what you're doing now, but but I think you wouldn't have been able to do what I did then. And just hope that history treats you kindly when you, <laughs> uh, you know, when you're an older guy and people are are in the trenches in, in a program that you set the stage for and, and hope that they're kind to you. <laughs> and I said, well, that's good. That's good. Good advice. Yeah, that's good. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you, you're doing incredible work, and, and you're, the leaders of your organization are doing incredible work. And it's uh, been fun for me to um, to learn from you and to, to listen. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's real humbling, you know, thinking about the work you're doing and why you're doing it. And and not that I'm an expert at it at all, but just the you know the insurmountable obstacles that you probably face on a daily, weekly, monthly, and annual basis. From fundraising to regulatory issues to you know families and relationship dynamics, I mean you're kind of in the in the trenches every day, and it and, and it's something I really admire. So thanks uh, for joining the podcast, and thanks for all your time and your insight. Well, thank you, thank you, and uh, good luck to you. Happy Thanksgiving, and stay safe and healthy. Thank you.